episode of the instruction booklet uh i am the electronic machine uh, known as your host jeremy and i'm joined by a man who believes that uh hot honey on pepperoni pizza is should be criminalized and that is my co-host michael what's up michael it, sh- it should be criminalized because of how good it is that's the important detail <laughs> i mean like that is crack i don't know if you guys have ever tried it but must have experience um if you eat animal products by all means if you haven't tried it yet please do it's really good i swear i uh i think we first encountered it uh with picking up a frozen pizza at aldi they had like a pepperoni with like the pretzel crust and it said hot honey so it was like supposedly it baked into it i couldn't really taste the hot honey interesting but uh then california pizza kitchen put out a pizza that has a croissant crush and it comes with a packet of hot honey and that nice. was the bomb that's the way to do it you got to drizzle it over the top so it's in more concentrated bursts rather than you know homogeneously sort of just dispersed throughout the entire thing yeah that's fair so but i digress yeah so uh what you been up to lately michael what you been watching reading playing i have been i've been playing street fighter yeah. Um, but I've also been trying to spend more of my time this summer playing tabletop RPGs. So not video games, but a different kind of game. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got a D&D group that's starting up again. And I've been playing a couple of sessions of this other tabletop RPG called Troika that I've been really enjoying. Very rules light stuff. And, um, you know, watching watching a lot of Dimension 20. Um, yeah. In our, the same sort of thing. Our our dark our dark lord known as our editor also watches a lot of Dimension Twenty. Oh, nice! It's so good. Yeah. <clears throat> I never really got much into the watching other people play D and D. Sure. Um, it, it, you know, it's a super production. It, I mean, it's it's a whole production, right? So it's definitely not like a normal game of D&D, it's very much played up with the expectation that somebody's going to be watching it for entertainment, so... Um, That's fair. But, you know, I find it a lot of fun. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah, well, I mean, I've been playing Street Fighter as well. I mean, I just got into playing Street Fighter. I bought it the day it came out, played it for four hours, and then went back to the gaping hole known as Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. Yeah. So, that, that ain't like two months of my time and then uh been reading just mostly my comics and stuff uh there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in comics right now and then uh 
I've been watching the bear season two came out. So we've I've just, heard that's good. We've just been ingesting that. And of course, like I finished the third season of Ted Lasso, which was really good. Nice. So nice. It's, it's, uh, it's been fun. Yeah, I've been um, I've been reading a clinical introduction to Lacanian psychoanalysis by Bruce Fink. Uh, not not sure that's anyone's tempo in, in the <laughs> listener base here, but if you've ever been interested in Lacanian psychoanalysis, it is a um, eminently readable introduction. So, all right, I will take your word on that. <laughs> so, well, all right, I guess we'll get into the episode. People don't want to hear us talking about some kind of psycho thing <laughs> yeah so uh psycho power and bison yeah and bison too yeah, much yeah. Uh, too much street fighter um so yeah. today we're talking about the 70s and not like the music or the culture we're talking about arcades and uh the home console market and how all of this kind of weird thing came about and eventually morphed into what we know like as the the home console market in the early days so it's uh we're gonna we're gonna kind of go this will be broken into like three sections so we're gonna talk a little bit about like how arcades kind of started and then how the arcades kind of morphed into the early days of consoles with like the magnavox odyssey and like a bunch of other stuff and this is going to kind of morph into what and how atari became this freaking huge juggernaut in like the 70s it's it's insane to me like like Michael, like just thinking about like how Atari was really big then, and now we just kind of know them as like just a random developer. Yeah, um, it is interesting how that development happens. But you know, if if viewers are interested in learning how that happens, then by all means, stay stu- uh, stay tuned. Oh yeah, we're we're, we're gonna get deep into that. <laughs> yeah, we'll get there. So I guess the best thing to start off with is uh, arcades. So you know. Before they were like huge uh, and become the things that we used to love and know, because Lord help me, I can't find an arcade to save my life these days. Um, They were completely different. They were originally called, they were just games of skill, which were super popular at like amusement parks and midway attractions. And they would eventually evolve into the corn operated machines that would provide business. Uh, And, you know, that that would also include like pinball machines. Uh, But these, uh, Eventually, these things called EM games would come onto the scene called electromechanical games, and they were clearly demonstrating themselves as games of st- skill to avoid the stigma of pinball machines, because apparently in the 1960s and the early 1970s, they were trying to ban pinball machines and arcades. <laughs> like, how strange is that? Yeah, that's interesting. Do you know why um, that is exactly? Uh, because the perception changed. People stopped seeing them as games of skill and started thinking them as games of luck. And so mm-hmm. they would equate that to gambling. Oh, interesting. And you can't have kids gambling. No, you know, unless you're Activision Blizzard. You know, those rebellious youth, they love to gamble. <laughs> yeah. Um, but interesting enough, during the same time period in Japan in the 1960s and 70s, EM games were like huge. They were like hitting this like huge stride. You know, arcades during this time were dominated by like jukeboxes and eventually EM games would come along and they would generate much more earnings than the jukeboxes would. So it's kind of weird to think about arcades and pinball machines competing with jukeboxes. Mm. 
interesting nowadays if i find like a arcade like a dave and busters i'm like drowned it out by like a 90s playlist that's just like going hard right and i typically associate jukeboxes with like you know old old school bars and diners more than arcades mm-hmm. um and then like you know in in 1965 the nakamura manufacturing company out of japan which would later be known for a company by name of namco which we know very well would create a game called periscope which was a submarine simulator and i promised that was in here before the news nice <laughs> and it, it was also a light gun shooter and then a few years later a company that we will eventually come to love and know sega would release its own version of periscope in the states uh, and that was periscope was very much like the like prototype like of like arcade games um Mm-hmm. This is how, like, like you know, people like Bowen Bushnell and stuff like that would see stuff like this and kind of like get some inspiration. Um, speaking of Bushnell in the late sixties, you know, he, as we mentioned in our first episode, he worked part time in arcades and became familiar with this stuff. And he was also heavily involved with a fun little game that we talked about called Space War, because you know during this period, Space War was being developed. And the group that developed it migrated across the country to another school and they took space wars so- source code and to run on another mainframe machine at those schools so you know this would inspire two different groups who would attempt to create coin operated machines yeah and um listeners who have been with us on previous episodes may remember that space war is considered by many to be the first real video game Mm-hmm. Um, in Mark J.P. Wolf and Bernard Perrin's 2003 book, The Video Game Theory Reader, um, which is one of the first collections of sort of academic work on video games, kind of from a um, scholarly perspective. Uh, Wolf and Perrin gesture towards a number of histories that have already given accounts of what is commonly considered to be the first real video game, and they name Space War specifically. Yeah. Um, though it is worth remembering that this is by no means an obvious claim and can be complicated if one chooses to interrogate what exactly counts as a video game, which is something that we uh, definitely did in our first episode. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, a lot of work has been done over the past two decades such that, you know, it's important to remember that this book is from 2003. Nevertheless, Space War has a very important moment in, in the development of the industry. Right. Yeah. And, you know, you know, and then in six, uh, you know, in '69, Bushwell was, you know, in, invited by a colleague to see Space War running on Stanford University computers, and he decided that he wanted to try and recreate it on a smaller computer called uh, a Data Generanova, and connected it to a coin operation terminal. And then him and his fellow employee Ted Dabney, uh, under a company name. Sizzigits, uh, I think that's, that is a word. Sizzigy? Yeah. Worked, yeah. They worked with uh, Nutting Associates to create Computer Space, which was the first commercial arcade game, and it sold 1,300 units. And while it's not a large hit, it provided like a huge leaping on point for people to say, like, hey, you know, we can put computer games and coins together and we can make some money. Yeah. Um, Clearly, it was a good idea because what's funny is actually shortly after Computer Space in 1971, um, there was another like heavily inspired um, Space War style game called Galaxy Game that was on the campus of Stanford University. Um, And it was actually, I think, 
possibly the first arcade game to require multiple cabinets to play. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was the second ever coin-operated game cabinet and wow. played very similarly to Computer Space and Space War, right? Very simple. You know, you've got a pixelated spaceship and you fly around and you blast the other person. It's it's so funny. These these early game names are just like so simplistic, like, you know, right. tennis for two. And <laughs> then you've got right. Space War exclamation point and computer space. Right. If anything, I mean, Space War, I think the exclamation point makes it more interesting yeah the other ones if it was just space war period it would just be like space war yeah (laughs) or if it had a question mark at the end of it like space war (laughs) yeah space war yeah um i mean they all have names like you know rocket ship yeah or uh the one that i played on the apple II was a moon lander oh yeah (laughs) i think this is a very simplistic game i just pushed buttons and then there was a See, our school had a, a computer lab, and it just had nothing but Apple IIs when I was like in second or third grade. And I remember there being Moonlander and Lights Out. So nice. Um, so yeah. Anyway, the at this point, like the arcade has exploded. Um, these coin-operated machines are starting to crop up, and people are, you know, they're making great. They're making a lot of money around us. But uh, with, with a little bit of a rewind with in 66, in 1966, while working at Sanderson Associates, Ralph Baer uh, came up with an idea for an entertainment device that could be hooked to televisions. And he presented uh, to Sanders and to get approval, he, along with William Harrison and uh, William Rush, would create something known as the Brown Box. It was a prototype of a home video console that could play a simple version of table tennis. Um the, the three would go on to patent the idea, and Sanders sold a license to Magnavox to commercialize it. Now, it, it's definitely going to be like worth like remembering that these guys patented this for something like for things later to come, because yes, that is very important. Um, this will be a useful tool that will help us later. Yeah, because um, with the help of Magnavox, they would go on to create what we know as the Odyssey, which was the first uh, commercial home console in 72. So these home consoles and this arcade stuff is kind of like happening parallel to one another. Um, Because, you know, Bushnell would go on to see the demonstration of this table tennis game on the Odyssey, and it would inspire him to create a game. Um, That game being pretty popular. I mean, sort of popular. It was just a game called Pong. That was released. I think, I think I've heard of that. Yeah, it was released in March yeah. 1973. It was, it was kind of successful. I mean, each machine only grossed like $40 a day. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And with its, with its success and, you know, this Odyssey, this home console, this numerous other coin operated machine manufacturers who are mostly making electronic games and pinball machines, they would attempt to capitalize on arcade games. And you would have companies such as Bailey Manufacturing, a, a tiny little company called Midway Manufacturing, who may go on to make some important fighting games, uh, Williams Electronics, Taito, and our friend Sega would join the market. Um, most to, to trying to copy Atari uh, with some small changes, and this would just lead to a wave of clones. Yep. Um, that would later go on to create problems for the industry, but we'll get there. Yeah, we're getting there. Um, 
it's worth mentioning too that the first generation of consoles they didn't have um microprocessors and custom boards that were created specifically for the games that they would hold over the generation technology uh improved and later consoles of the generation moved to build circuits with integrated circuits such as the atari's pong chip um, graphics in these early consoles were very limited often supported with physical accessories and screen overlays so like like a plastic sheet that you would have to hold in front of the tv screen or like fixed to the front of the tv screen that would actually make up part of the interface um but you know some improvements would would come about sort of as towards the end of this generation um the odyssey itself could only display three square dots in black and white uh, as the generation progressed consoles would start to display color as well as more complex shapes and texts um, audio capabilities were slow to improve over the generation um, starting with the odyssey which actually had no audio and then later moving on to consoles which had buzzers and could produce a small range of beeps and buzzes I know, and we, we got that, like, picture of the Odyssey in here, and it's like, I think I described it yesterday when we were going over the notes, that it looks like a vacuum cleaner head. Yeah, it's a very interesting console. Um, if, you, if, if you guys are at a computer right now, you know, just look it up, the Magnavox Odyssey. The controllers are very interesting as well. Uh, they're just, like, large bricks with knobs on them. Yeah, it, 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 it makes me think of uh, something kind of hilarious. was, like, when you were talking about the uh, putting screen overlays, you know how, like... Could you imagine someone getting mad and just walking up to the screen, just ripping the overlay off? Yeah, I'm sure that must have happened. <laughs> Somebody just runs up to the screen like, I'm tired of playing this game, just rips it and throws it across the room. Yeah. So. It's funny, I mean, like, that's the kind of thing that I would expect to see, like, in a McDonald's Happy Meal nowadays, you know? Uh, like it also cheap plastic thing. It makes me think of, like, uh, when you go to, like, Target or something and you see these, like, little tiny... Like they're like game consoles that you just plug into the TV and they've got like 30 games on them. And we've kind of like yeah. looped back around to that. Like I remember thinking, dude, like when I was a kid, mm -hmm. so, you know, th this I'm going to I'm going to date myself in terms of my age. The first real console that I had growing up was the Nintendo 64. OK, and I remember finding one of those things that you're talking about yeah like like a controller like a cheap controller that actually had games built into it and was basically just like its own kind of crappy console mm. and i remember actually thinking it was like the coolest thing ever i was like this thing this thing has games on it like you don't even have to put a disc or a cartridge into it yeah um, but you know that's like that's how these old consoles used to be right it's like you would buy them and it would just have the games on it mm-hmm it's so. it's so funny how like we we started here with these things that are pre-built with games built into them then we move to like cartridges and discs and now we've kind of almost reached like back around to that point because now you just buy a console and you just download games right we're, we're back into the era of consoles without you know disc drives or yeah. cartridge uh, slots it's interesting yeah so this kind of leads us into our second part where we actually just talk about the Odyssey, like, and there's these other consoles. So, you know, the Odyssey was originally designed, as we said, by Ralph H. Baer at Sanderson Associates. And Magnavox actually completed the development and released it in the U.S. in September of 1972 and overseas the following year. You know, and the console was white and black, brown box that connects to the TV with these two weird rectangular controllers. Looks like a vacuum cleaner head. 
And the uh, players will place the plastic overlays on the screen to add visual elements. And then one or two players for each game controlled their dots with the knobs and the buttons on the controllers. Um, but, you know, the idea was conceived in 1966 when and it took over three years for Bear with Bill Harrison and Bill Roosh to create seven successful prototypes for the console. The seventh was known as the Brown Box, which I think there's still some photos online of what the original Brown Box looks, looks like. And it's sort of close to the like the Odyssey design. Um, they showed it to several manufacturers before Magnavox agreed to produce it in 1971. Um, after releasing it through Magnavox, they sold 69,000 units in the first calendar year. Wow. With 350,000 by the time the console was discontinued in 1975. Uh, one of the 28 games made for the system was a ping pong game, as we mentioned earlier, and this would go on to inspire Pong. And it also really helped drive the sales of the Odyssey. I mean, like, can you, can you like, this is like before Atari puts out, you know, their console, your Magnavox, your sales pitch is literally just, hey, do you guys like playing Pong? Fire Odyssey. Yeah. <laughs> nice. That's funny. Oh. Um, yeah, after the Odyssey from around like se- 1973 to 1977, um, the video game industry experienced its first major flourishing period, fueled in large part both by a growing interest in video games, as well as the simultaneously rapid development of technology in the home electronics industry. Um, looking at a 1975 Business Week article that compares the game market to the calculator market, video game historian Mark J.P. Wolf reminds us that the home video games appeared as a part of the larger home electronics industry and must be understood in that context. Video games were just one of many innovative products that emerged in the years following the appearance of large-scale integrated circuits and microprocessors, such as pocket calculators, digital watches, and later home computers. Um, um, Sort of monumental invention at this time was in 1976, General Instrument released their AY38500 computer chip, which possessed all the circuitry needed to house a video game on a single chip and could be mass-produced in a cost-effective manner. Um, the invention of this chip apparently led to what is called, quote-unquote, an onslaught of new systems in the market, with one article, with one 1977 article from the Chicago Tribune listing as many as 22 different consoles made by 14 different companies around the end of 1977. Wow. Which is crazy, um, considering that, like, nowadays we have, like, three companies making consoles, and it's once every, I don't know, two quarters of a decade? Not yeah. Two quarters. Uh, Some, we get one, like, every at least... You know, most consoles are on now like a... I mean, originally you'd think about consoles were on probably like a five to six, like five to ten year cycle. I, I would yeah. I would argue that consoles are on a longer lifetime cycle now just because of how close consoles are to like computers. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think, I think you're going to have a hard time selling me on like a PlayStation 6, you know, like... Yeah. Because I think the PS, I, you know, it's like, how much better could it get? Right. Um, but I'm sure people were saying the same thing in like, you know, 2003. So there was always like something that um, when I did some of my computer science classes, where we would talk about like, uh, like how technology works in terms of like optimization. And then once you reach like the optimal point that it can't get any better, you stop going, you know, big and you start like condensing. 
Yeah, that uh, makes sense. Cell phones did that for a while, though cell phones have done like something weird where they went small and now they've like expanded again. Mm. And uh, you can see that with like uh, TVs because like, you know, like originally a 1080p like TV when they first came out were like these big, bulky, giant TVs. And now like yeah. if you bought like an HD TV, it's going to be like super thin, very lightweight. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, that, that's what I kind of think of as like, you know, these early graphing, these early calculators, you know, they were huge. <laughs> they yeah. were like mini computers in your hand. Yeah. So. Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah, the future of consoles may just be similarly powerful machines, but like, you know, the Nintendo Switch and the Steam Deck doing right. the portable thing. Interesting. Um, around the same time that all of this is happening with like the boom in the video game industry, um, home computers kind of arrive on the scene with micro instrumentation and telemetry systems altair 8800 in 1975 and then the apple one in 1976 and personal computers quickly became a popular alternative to dedicated game systems because they had comparatively powerful hardware uh, offering color graphics and sound capable of emulating the video games found in public arcades and the arrival of home computers into the gaming industry also begat the first interactive fiction games because you had you had a keyboard and so you could type right like um william crowther and don wood's colossal cave adventure in 1976 which was a narrative heavy fantasy game inspired by J.R.R. tolkien and dungeons and dragons um, of which myself i'm a big fan yeah um colossal cave adventure is regarded as being possibly the first adventure computer game taking place within a more narratively detailed and developed world delivered to the player through text and tasking players with navigating the world and taking action through typing text commands like north enter building tie rope or eat food um so it was important that you had a keyboard to play this game i mean i eat food a lot so I eat food a lot too, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I also go north, enter building, and occasionally tie rope. Yeah, I mean, just good things to know. Yep. Um, And then text-based adventure games like Colossal Cave Adventure also kind of helped establish a new precedent for how video games could be used as a storytelling medium and would have a profound impact on even non-text-based games moving forward. Nice. And yeah, you're talking about like uh, with home computers, there's something else that like we're eventually going to have to talk about because... Uh, around the same time there was mainframe games which were like because mm. that's kind of how space war was moved like you know these huge rooms that had these games and people would do almost like if you can remember uh, like like the newsletter server stuff kind of where people would share files all the time this mm-hmm. was kind of like the early days of that which to talk about it it's gonna take us it's gonna be a, like we're gonna have to dedicate a whole episode to talking about like how mainframe games influenced this how personal computer gaming was because it's weird because like i think we talked about this a little bit in our first episode how home computers and consoles kind of stay away from each other for a little while and then they finally start like kind of coming towards each other and then eventually you reach kind of like today where like we were talking about modern consoles are basically just small computers right and it's it's kind of neat watching the two of them like influence each other throughout the years yeah. Now, like computers will make some leap and then the consoles will do something and the computer is like, oh, well, we can just do that, too. <laughs> yeah. So. Not to skip ahead, but I think I think Nintendo actually one of their first consoles is even like has the word computer in the name. Yeah. Um, yeah. Speaking of like other consoles, you know, and 
other companies were also releasing consoles around this time. So, you know, like in September 12th of 1975, several months before the release of Home Pong, uh, Epoch released Japan's first home console. It was called the TV Tennis Electro Tennis. Uh, its technology was licensed from Magnavox, and it contained a small ball and paddle style game that resembled Pong, but without an on-screen score display. The game controls were contained within the base of a unit, and it connected to your TV through UHF antenna, as opposed to being directly connected, uh, which was very unique. And uh, compared to popular consoles, it didn't really sell well. It was about 20,000 units. And the, the picture of this thing is so, so weird. Yeah, it's like the wackiest console I think I've ever seen. Yeah, if, if you're if you're on your phone or your computer, like just just Google search TV tennis electro tennis, and you will see this thing. Like, it's so it's so strange, and the fact that it uses like UHF antennas to like communicate to the TV is just also so bizarre to me. <laughs> um, but you know there was another console in '76. Coleco released several. Or at least a series of 14 dedicated consoles up until about 78 when they suffered some significant loss due to a uh, worker strike and prevented it from being shipped. Um, uh, the series featured a number of different styles of ball games, external accessories to enhance gameplay. Uh, they had unique triangle designs that came with a light gun and steering wheel. And if, we would eventually know this as the ColecoVision, which looks just like something I would see in a 1970s business movie. Right. So it looks very boring. It does. And the controller is very strange looking too. It's like a self, like an old car phone. It looks like it. Um, and just to add a, a nice little piece to this, uh, in the late 1970s, a small company called Nintendo, uh, they're not like a big deal or anything. Yeah. They would release a series of five consoles in the Japanese market. Uh, the first of the series and the first console created by Nintendo was called the Color TV Game 6 and was released in 77 and contained six ball and paddle games. The last, the Computer TV game, was a 1980s port of Nintendo's first arcade game, Computer Othello. And the third console in the series, the Color TV Game Racing 112, was the first project some guy named Shigeru Minamoto uh, created. I mean, I don't know if he's a big deal either. Yeah, and we'll have to look into it when we, uh, you know, research. Yeah. So, and I think um, there's like another console too that we're missing. Yeah. So, we probably alluded to this, or I probably alluded to this, especially in our uh, inaugural um, Easter egg episode zero, if you listen to it. Um, but there's a very important video game console that comes out around this time. And it's one that you may not have heard of, and it is the Fairchild Channel F video entertainment system. Uh, it was released in 1976. And believe it or not, this system was the first home video game console to feature game cartridges that could be swapped in and out of the console to play different games, as opposed to just having a certain handful of games hard coded into the system, which is kind of what we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Um, despite uh, this groundbreaking technological innovation for the time, the Channel F video entertainment system has been largely overlooked in accounts of video game history. Uh, according to Zach Whalen, who is another sort of video game studies um, scholar, 
the Channel F video entertainment system comprised several significant milestones in the home console technology and culture, uh, but remains relatively unknown today, whereas its major competitor, the Atari video game system, is emblematic of retro gaming nostalgia. Yeah, that would um, be the uh, the 2600. Yeah, yeah, the 2600. Um, and, you know, it's important for video game history, of course, that we give credit where credit is due. Um, I mean, one of the reasons why, for instance, Warren Robinett was largely sort of crowned as the king of the Easter egg for so long was actually because, you know, the, the games where Easter eggs existed otherwise, like video game or video whiz ball in the channel F, uh, video entertainment system, they simply weren't popular enough for people to actually just like, you know, go in depth into them and, and find the Easter eggs the way that things like adventure were. Yeah. And the, the great part is, is um, if you're really interested in the channel F, uh, I highly recommend there is a YouTube channel called uh, video game historian. And he just did an episode about the, the channel F. Yeah. Very timely. Yeah. It's very good too. Um, the Channel F controllers were like joysticks, but without a base. Um, so like a thing that you hold vertically, like a you know straight line up. The main body is a large hand grip with a triangular cap on top, the top being the portion that actually moved for eight-way directional control. It could be used as both a joystick and a paddle, and it could be pushed down to operate as a fire button and be pulled up as well. Um, the first generation console also contained a small compartment for storing the controllers when moving or when not in use. Nice. That's kind of like uh, the Coleco. The Coleco had that too. Yeah. It's uh, interesting how, you know, these companies would like look at one another to like get inspiration for how they wanted to, you know, build their consoles and such. Yeah. I mean, if there's anything that the early video game industry uh, is doing is it's it's ripping its comp competitions off right everyone's ripping off each other in terms of looking for inspiration in, in games and in design I'm, I'm sure that won't cause any problems I, I don't see how it could you know yeah um you know so with all this talk of all these consoles and how it seems as though they've all have this like you know paddle games that are like tennis like that leads us into like our, our third and kind of last section of the episode of this company called atari um you know this founded by nolan bushnell and ted dabney we mentioned earlier uh they were kind of a key player in the formation of video games and the arcade and just the industry in whole they were based primarily around sunnyville california and the company was initially formed to develop arcade games they launched pong in 1972 to great success um, as computer technology matured with low-cost circuits, as you know, Michael was mentioning, the Atari would venture into the consumer market, first with a dedicated home version of Pong and other arcade successes around 1975. Uh, originally, they wanted to stick with the name of Syzygy, which is apparently an astronomical term, but it, was already, it already existed by the people who were working on computer space. So Bushnell was apparently a big fan of the strategy board game Go. And, is and in considering various terms for the game, they chose the name Atari as a Japanese term in the context of the game means a state where a group of stones uh, is imminently in danger of being taken by one's opponent, which is so strange to think about for a computer company. Like, you named your company um, to be in, in imminent danger. Like, Interesting. Okay. <laughs> I don't think, has it, was Atari ever bought out? 
I think they're still their own independent developer, aren't they? Yeah, I'm not sure, actually. That's interesting. Yeah. I will have to look into that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Pong was their first commercially successful video game, and it helped establish the industry along with the Odyssey. Uh, soon after its release, several companies began producing games that kind of closely mimic the gameplay. Eventually, uh, Atari's competitors would release new types of video games that deviated from Pong's original format and to varying degrees. This, in turn, led to Atari encouraging its staff to move beyond Pong and produce more innovative games. So, you know, that's like that's kind of useful because like it's, you know, the competition breeds innovation kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, the guys down the street just made, you know, Colossal Cave Adventure. We should build something like that. You know, I'm, I'm fairly certain the 2600 had uh Oh, why can't I think of the name of the game? I've played adventure. I've played a 2600. Yeah, there's adventure and then there's um why can I not think of this one? It's the it's like the jungle one. The guy swinging on the vines of the crocodiles. Oh yeah, I know what you're talking about. I also is it Pitfall? Yes, Pitfall, thank you. Pitfall, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I had a friend uh, when I was in like elementary school that had a 2600, so I actually got to play some of the games on the 2600. Which, you know, I, was, I played a lot of Pitfall. There was one game called Barnstormer where you're a plane and you had to fly through barns. Like, Interesting. So it's, it's so funny, like, playing some of these old, like, Atari games. And you're just seeing, like, the basics of these, how these things were built. And this is all a company built off the success off a ripoff of Tennis for Two. <laughs> yep. So, you know, so Atari would release several sequels uh, to Pong and build upon the original's gameplay by adding new features. And trust me when I say that there are a billion versions of Pong. <laughs> I mean, not yeah. actually a billion, but like, there are so many Pong. Think back to, you know, the uh, the thing that I was reading earlier about there being what, um, 22 different consoles made by 14 companies within the span of like one year. Yeah. And just imagine that all of these companies are just making, you know, they're just printing ripoffs of Pong, yeah. you know? Well, we, we've, we've made this new like. system. What should we do? What if we make a ripoff of Pong? Genius. Right. <laughs> Get Does this. it have Pong? Does it have Pong was the uh, can it run crisis <laughs> yeah. of, of the 1970s. <laughs> we, should, we, should, we should make that onto a shirt and just sell it. Can it? Yeah. Does it have Pong? Does it have Pong? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, eventually Atari, probably sick of all these people making Pong ripsoffs, would make a home release of Pong that was exclusively sold at Sears, another yeah, dead institution. <laughs> it, yeah. was, it was a commercial success, but unfortunately just led to more clones. Um, but, you know, a fun tidbit of information is Pong's now a permanent part of the Smithsonian. Nice. Yeah, you can, you know. Go read about it in Smithsonian. Maybe one of these days I'll make my way up there. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, Atari, important company. It would establish itself as a clear front runner of the industry by around 1977 with the release of the now iconic Atari um, VCS, which was later renamed the Atari 2600. Nice. Um, which is what we were mentioning earlier. Much like the often overlooked Fairchild Channel F Video Entertainment System, uh, which I will always take an opportunity to mention if I can. The Atari video console system. No, not video console. What, the VCS. I'm not actually sure what that stands for. One sec. Yeah. Atari VCS. I used to know it. And I actually just forgot. 
because <laughs> brains do things sometimes. That they do. <laughs> um, never mind. I'll find it out at some point. Yeah, we'll just um, we'll mention it in a later episode. Yeah. Um, Stay tuned. <laughs> it also featured interchangeable game cartridges that would allow consumers to play a wide variety of games on the console. So this was kind of Atari looking at what Fairchild was doing mm -hmm. and saying, um, you know, we're going to kind of one up you. Um, and in many ways they did. Um, the Atari VCS for many reasons was more successful historically than the Fairchild Channel F video entertainment system was. Uh, Atari was just simple. I mean, they were pushing out more cartridges. They were pushing out cheaper cartridges. Mm -hmm. um, I know there were complaints about, you know, like the Fairchild, you know, the, the cartridges were just not coming out as frequently enough and they were way more expensive than the yeah. Atari counterparts. I think um, based on the the video game historian video that I was watching, they there was only six Fairchild cartridges that were developed, and I don't think all six of them were released. Yeah. Um, so that, so that definitely know, hurt a, them. It was a console sold on, you know, empty promises. Yeah. Even if it did pioneer the technology. Yeah, lofty dreams that were eventually kind of squandered. Um, but the Atari VCS is a console that I think really needs to be contextualized a little bit better in terms of what is happening to the video game industry like as a whole at this time around like 1976. Mm -hmm. And I think in order to give that context for the video game industry and for kind of the moment, um, we'll need to dive deeper into what is known as kind of the first crash of the video game industry in 1976 which if you guys stay tuned we will cover in more detail in our september episode yeah our landmark episode making it to five episodes which is what our plan is <laughs> for right now um yeah it's it's interesting that this like this period from like 1970 to you know where we're kind of stopping here in like 1976 even though we kind of talked about some things beyond that, it's this blip where you went from nothing like pinball machines and electronic games and jukeboxes and parents trying to ban pinball machines for some bizarre reason <laughs> to this explosion of like people being like, hey, people like playing games. If we stick a coin slot on this thing and stick it in a arcade somewhere, we can make some money to, you know, some guys sitting down going, we can also put this in people's homes. So it's, it's very like, it's interesting to watch like this quick rapid succession of like things in such a short period of time, which yeah. is nothing compared to what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, there are some rough roads ahead for the video game industry. Right. And then, you know, even talking about like how rapidly things can, you know, come out, like, you know, you look how fast like things develop nowadays, you know, we go from like maybe just probably five, six years ago, people like slowly starting to get, begin VR. And now it's just like I could go to Target and pick up a $300 like quest yeah, and play Beat Saber. 
it's definitely getting there. Yeah. I think 300 is still probably a steep investment for some people, especially considering for around the same price, you can get an Xbox Series S, I think, right? Like the digital one. It's or like 300, 400. Or Nintendo Switch. <laughs> That's true. So, so yeah. Um, Atari VCS, by the way, video computer system. Okay. It was actually so obvious that I just forgot. I think <laughs> I started saying something along that line and I tricked myself into thinking that I didn't know what this meant. Yeah. So I guess uh, any closing thoughts from you, Michael, about this uh, this this period of time in the, the, the late 60s, early 70s? Yeah, I, I think it's such an interesting moment in the history of the video game industry because this is kind of the first decade where the video game industry as such like as a recognizable entity really becomes a thing mm -hmm. you know uh, previous decades the 60s of course had things like space war and you had like some theorization about the potential for video games but it's really like the 70s where you know the modern conception of you go you buy a thing that you plug into your TV and it allows you to play games. That's when this becomes a thing. Yeah. And what's so interesting for me is that it's so there's so much like heterogeneity mm -hmm. in, in this era of video games. I mean, I think there's a very weird way in which the contemporary video game industry has been homogenized. Um, which is not necessarily a bad thing. You could say it's just we figured out what works best. Right. But if you hold up an Xbox controller to a PlayStation controller to, I don't know, like, you know, a Nintendo Switch Pro controller, mm -hmm. they look the same to me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Obviously, they feel different. You know, the, the contours, the way the things grip your hands, the, the placement of the joysticks. Obviously, they're different, but they're so much more similar to each other than you know the magnavox odyssey controller compared to the fairchild channel f video entertainment system controller compared to the atari 2600 controller i mean this was like the wild west for people trying to figure out what the video game industry was and i think there's a very interesting way in which you can go back to the 70s and you can still see thing i don't know like good ideas that for some reason just didn't work yeah um it's like, it well, makes we, me oh go ahead no, go ahead uh, it's, it's, like, it's like what i was saying like where it's like how we've kind of looped back around where it's like people make these consoles with pre-built games and just plug them into the tvs but yet like right. at some point we decided to stop doing that and move to cartridges and now we've kind of looped back around to that like you can see where it's like people were it's like if, if they just own the console and put the games on it, that we can sell them, you know, the cartridge, quote unquote, as a download. Yeah. I, I look at this era in video games, you know, Pong copies aside. Right. And I wish that developers were still interested in, like, taking risks and doing things radically different. Mm -hmm. um, of course, this sometimes has problems you know like the wii u was decidedly not a great console in my opinion oh yeah it, it was it had terrible marketing too they 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 should have named it something else yeah i mean um, but like look at like the dreamcast which was like a big deal like kind of ahead of its time for some of the stuff that it was doing but it, it just it was a commercial flop yeah 
but people have um, like such fond memories of that console. Yeah, that's true. Or uh, Nintendo's uh, Nintendo's virtual, you know, the virtual boy. <laughs> yeah. So it's uh, I, it's fascinating that like, yeah, you're right. Like people don't take as many risks nowadays. Right. It's weird. I, I mean, I appreciate Nintendo for kind of always willing to be weird to do, willing to do weird things. Like mm-hmm. the Switch is a very interesting console. Yeah. Um, and I think it's been very successful and has, you know, I mean, the same general idea is there as far as controller layout, especially if you plug both of the Joy-Cons into like the little holder that turns it into a more traditional controller. But yeah, it is it is different. But like you, you don't see people like making, you know, like with the uh, the electro tennis where it's like, here's a console that works via antenna or like, right. you know, I'm not surprised we haven't reached a point in technology where we have integrated TVs and consoles in one thing. Yeah. Like Sony makes TVs. Why have they not built a combination TV to PlayStation? <laughs> Yeah, for real. That'd be a good idea. Swear to God, Sony, if you're listening to me and you do this, I best get some money. <laughs> do, you, do you remember, did you ever try out one of those Steam controllers? Um, No, I, but I do have a, I have a, uh, a now discontinued, I have the, uh, the Steam Link, the little box Interesting. that you hook up to your TV. Yeah. And now you, it's a, you... it's an app on your phone. Oh yeah. So. Did you ever see the Steam controllers? Yeah, it had like the indents, right? It had like those big weird touch pads that also like clicked, I think. Mm-hmm. I, I'm just like, I'm thinking about that now because I'm like, man, I wish that controller, I wish it would have done better. It was actually a good controller. I just think it was, it was just too different than what people, you know, like some people want the familiarity of being able to just sit down and play Halo or Call of Duty with the same controls that they've always known how to use. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, you know, just one of the one of the problems is it's just become very familiar for controllers to have this kind of layout. Yeah. And I, I miss I miss the wackiness, you know, I almost wish that, you know, like the Ouya or the the Soldier Boy game console would have or the what was the, the Stadia. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, Stadia had other problems. Oh, yeah. Um, That's so a- I do th- I do think Google was on the right track with that. I mean, I do think that game streaming is going to become a, a more viable thing. Yeah, yeah. As time goes on. Yeah, I, I think for me, like looking at this like time period and like I, I, I see all this stuff like where it's like, wow, it just like these people had this new technology on their hands and it just they just went with it and they just tried it's like they tried everything yeah you know like you you said like there was like 28 consoles from 14 companies like i want to know what all these consoles look like (laughs) like right how far out in the weeds do some of these people get i want to know what all the controllers look like yeah and like what all games did they play like just it, it, it all makes me go back to like part of like why we're doing this show and stuff of like trying to preserve like the history and how that's like becoming a newer thing of like preserving old video game history yeah. and and looking at it from like this like critical like eye from like you know how we're comparing it to the present and like how these two things are almost kind of similar but also very different and this you know cycle that it's kind of going through yeah 
Well, one of the interesting dilemmas of sort of doing a history is that you're always retroactively going to frame uh, the narrative in terms of, you know, our current position looking back. Yeah. Um, so it's inevitable that, you know, we, we draw comparisons to where the video game industry kind of ended up today. Yep. Um, but it's still, you know, it's super cool to, to look at the potential in some of these things. I mean, I think it's either Zach Whalen, who I mentioned earlier, or somebody else um, even has like a, a, makes a comment about how, you know, the Atari um, sort of like joystick becomes almost a, I don't know, it's like iconic for early video game history. You look at the joystick, right? Yeah. Um, and somebody makes a comment about how, you know, if the Fairchild Channel F video entertainment system had exploded instead of the Atari 2600, maybe we'd, we'd, we'd be looking at websites with like pixelated, you know, Fairchild controllers instead of Atari controllers as like the iconic early video game history controller. That's true. It's an interesting thing to consider. I like, I like the potential in, in sort of history's dead ends. To yeah. see where you know things could have gone had had things played out slightly differently. Right. Cool. All right. Well, I think uh, that about wraps us up for th this episode. Uh, as Bango mentioned, be sure to tune in to September's episode where we talk about the first video game crash and maybe some of the things that we were alluding to that caused this thing. Um, but next month we have episode four which we don't know what we're going to do yet. <laughs> we have we're between a few things. We're yeah. between a few things. We've yeah. kicked around a few ideas. Uh, you know, you'll know as soon as we know, which is actually not true because we'll know and then record the episode and then you'll know. So, yeah, I like the idea that we sit down to record the episode and up until the moment that one of us settles on something, we don't. Uh, yeah, we just we don't, don't have an idea. Yeah. So, so uh, I guess we'll uh, do our plugs and then we'll wrap it up. So, Michael, where can the folks find you? Um, I'm on Twitter, uh, and I always have to recheck my Twitter because, to be honest, I barely log into this thing, but it's at Mackerel Prawns. Um, you know, it sounds like the uh, the aquatic animals with the same name. Instagram also the same, except with a uh, underscore between the words. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah. And uh, I've been Jeremy. Uh, you can find me on twitch.tv slash backwards hero when I actually decide I want to stream. Uh, I also have an art account on Instagram and Facebook called uh, Press Art F4. Uh, I was doing a month of Kaiju, but I fell behind a little bit, even though I created a pump, but I'm going to try and jam it all in for, for the month ends. Uh, you can also find me on the Cage of Greatness podcast, which is also currently on hiatus because it's summertime and we needed a break and other things. But Go back and listen to previous episodes. Go back and listen to previous episodes of the instruction booklet. We, we really appreciate you guys just like tuning in and listening to us ramble about video games. Um, you know, you can find us on the instruction booklet on Facebook. Uh, we're instruction underscore BK for uh, Twitter. Uh, we also have a link tree. It's link.tr. Linktr.e slash instruction booklet has all of our links. And we also have an email address, which is instructionbooklet87 at gmail. Hey, you got a complaint about the show? Email us. If you like the show, email us. If you got a question, we may do a, a mailbag episode one day. One day. Yeah, that'd be fun. I don't know. We'll see. Um, 
And as always, uh, we're really thankful to be on the AYCH network. You can find the AYCH Extra on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. There's Twitter at AYCH Podcast. And then there's AYCH Extra on Twitter. There's also an Instagram. And there's all kinds of stuff. So, again, thank you all so much for listening to us. We appreciate it. You know, currently our milestone goal is to get to that episode five where we can tell you about the first video game crash and currently make you really wonder what we're going to do for next month because, you know, we would like to know that too. Yep. And if I, if you notice I sound different today, it's because I'm on my, um, my headset. I'm actually on vacation for the summer and I don't have my normal setup with me. So, you know, bear with me if my mic headset isn't the best quality. Yeah. So, or if uh, you hear a dog or cat noises in the back. Right. So yeah, again, thanks to everybody for listening. Also, thanks to our dark editor who edits the show and makes it sound great for us. Uh, But yeah, we'll catch you guys next month for episode four, which is currently titled, We Honestly Don't Know. Awesome. See y'all. Thanks, guys.